Hello, and welcome to the Investing on the Go podcast. I'm James Yardley, and today I'm joined by Mithran Sapir, the elite rated manager of the Goldman Sachs India Equity Portfolio Fund. Mithran, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, great to be here, James. Thanks for having me. Mithran, so you obviously manage a portfolio of, of Indian equities, so let's talk a little bit about the Indian market. Um, it's been a roller coaster ride last year. Uh, India sold off very aggressively, as many markets did uh, with the pandemic, but now it's bounced back very strongly. Um, can you tell us a bit about what's caused that and what you're seeing on the ground? There are three key reasons why that rebound was as strong. Firstly, I mean, bear in mind, India went into a fairly severe lockdown at the back end of March, and that continued through most of the summer. Uh, I think the first point I was going to make was just on economic recovery in the second half of the year, as basically new cases and active cases have fallen by about 90 odd percent since the peak that we saw in mid-September. The recovery rate has been quite healthy and the fatality rates are much lower than global average. And you could blame it on the weather, the kind of average age being meaningfully lower than the rest of the world or just some kind of natural immunity. But I think the end uh, product of that is clearly that the fatality rates are meaningfully lower. And I think that's one of the reasons for optimism. The second is also just the positive news flow around vaccine rollout has clearly boosted investor confidence and especially kind of on the recovery side of things as that lockdown was lifted in at the end of the second quarter. You basically have industrial activity at this point back to pre-COVID levels if you were to look at automobiles, electricity, steel consumption, cement, and kind of some high-frequency indicators. Services side, I think, is probably less positive, but still we're about 10% off from kind of pre-COVID levels. So I think that's one key reason the economy opened up much more aggressively than most people would have anticipated. The second one, I think, was just on the on the government support and policy side of things. Clearly, India's fiscal stimulus was, was nowhere close to the rest of the kind of Western world. But you've probably seen somewhere in the 12% of GDP decree level of um, of fiscal stimulus, which were a little more, it's a little more measured, but also better targeted than previous episodes that we've seen, where you've had some degree of direct transfers uh, into bank accounts, you've had kind of transfer of grains, credit guarantees for various kinds of SME businesses and so on, which have obviously been quite helpful. Uh, the central bank also, due credit, was kind of ensured that there's adequate liquidity in the system, that there are a host of other measures around lowering policy rates, six-month loan moratorium, forbearance from NPL, kind of classification and so on. So I think that's the second key reason. The third one, and I, I think we can discuss this uh, in, in much greater detail, which is the, the government using COVID as an opportunity to pass some of those significant reform agenda items that most investors would have desired over that time frame. And kind of the Churchillian quote comes to mind where never let a good crisis uh, go to waste. Yeah. Well, uh, tell us a little bit more about those reforms, because uh, we always hear how reform is famously difficult to achieve in India. So... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'd say the first point here is just the backdrop is helpful. Obviously, in 2019, the government came back to power with an even stronger majority than in 2014. So they're obviously in a comfortable place from that perspective. And at least we know 
there's policy visibility, at least for the next five years. I'd say post-pandemic, the reforms have basically been in kind of four key buckets. The first was just deregulation and rationalization of labor laws. There were 24 different labor codes um, that needed to be adhered to. And I mean, the joke on the street was that you couldn't um, adhere to one of them without breaking another one of those rules. So I think realistically, this was quite challenging for a lot of businesses. The fact that these were streamlined to just five labor codes, the fact that you don't have to go and kind of queue up and wait for approvals for hiring and firing individuals if you were more than kind of the thresholds have now been increased. Um, and as well as this kind of an automated kind of approval methodology where unless you hear back, uh, uh, on on your application, it's assumed that your application has gone through, which I think just puts the onus of approval or rejection on the bureaucracy as opposed to on the company that, that could be waiting indefinitely. So just those kind of small tweaks uh, have been quite significant and labor unions as well. I mean, there was a point where um, I think the poster child example for this would be where one of our auto companies was uh, you know, having to negotiate with 20 plus labor unions at one point. Famously, clearly, I, I don't think uh, those kind of situations are likely to occur in future because the onus is on the labor unions now to identify one representative voice and the management has to negotiate with one labor union. So I think those kind of measures on the labor side were clearly quite significant and they're already in place. Uh, the second one, I think, is a little more contentious is with the farm reforms. And I'm sure you've seen some of those protests that are happening right now. Just maybe a, a step back to look at what the reforms actually were. Uh, the reforms basically targeted a couple of key aspects. One was just the categorization of essential commodities um, of a broad range of goods basically meant that investing in and storing uh, some of these commodities beyond kind of very low limits was was deemed illegal and kind of punished with the jail time, uh, which obviously prohibited investments in cold storage, prohibited investments in kind of those logistics facilities and so on, because clearly, and, and also prohibited kind of contract farming and, and those kind of um, initiatives. The second point here is also Farmers were restricted in terms of who they could sell to. Most of these sales would happen through regulated agriculture market, produce marketing commissions. Uh, and obviously these institutions then had monopolies. These intermediaries would have monopolies. Um, I think that's, that's kind of reduced the scope for farmers to go out and sell more broadly, sell directly to corporates, to supermarket chains and so on, like you've seen in, in most other parts of the world. So that's where the like those I think both of those are are significant positives where instead of having a small chunk of intermediaries kind of eat up a lot of that uh, profitability, I do think that this can now both farmers and consumers can benefit from being able to go through other channels as opposed to just this narrow you know distribution channel. Um, but yeah, I think like ultimately our view is that. The protests are really only happening in a couple of major states um, out of the 29 states in India. So clearly, in vast majority of the of the land, it still seemed to be fairly acceptable. You probably end up with kind of some degree of additional subsidies for the dissenting voices 
or kind of options to opt out of, of the reform itself uh, at the individual state level uh, in order to make it a little more palatable to the dissenting voices. But ultimately, I, I, w- I would think of this as, as being fairly well entrenched. I think the final point I wanted to mention just on the reform side to round that discussion off would be on the manufacturing side of things where there's probably been the most amount of movement. Um, basically, the, the plan here is to give out 4 to 6% of the value of the goods manufactured in India as a subsidy to attract a lot of international manufacturing and promote that Make in India initiative. Um, to give you a, a sense of scale, um, like India used to be... For, from an um, import perspective, uh, India's biggest import was obviously co- crude, but the second biggest head would be under consumer electronics. Uh, last year was a watershed moment for India when we went from a commodity, you know, from a kind of consumer electronics uh, net importer to actually a small net export, which gives you a sense of that domestic manufacturing capability coming through. Clearly, you've seen your you know, Apple supply chain and kind of other Android makers move into to kind of diversify their production base out of China, especially as you've seen with the pandemic or just tariffs and other trade tensions. Uh, it, it became quite apparent that there was a fair amount of consolidation and concentration of risk in global manufacturing in China. And India is offering these initiatives at a point where there is both a push and a pull factor. India trying to attract this, but also companies proactively trying to diversify. So just from a timing perspective, I think this could be quite interesting. And clearly, we've seen the success on the smartphone side. And now that's expanding into other segments, as I mentioned. And much is made of the rising Indian middle class. Is that a theme which you're playing in your portfolio? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there are a couple of major uh, shifts that we've seen in in kind of consumption patterns. Uh, first and foremost, let's recognize India's got about a 1.3 billion person kind of uh, population. Uh, within that, if you were to pull out kind of millennials, almost a third of that uh, would would be millennials. So clearly, young uh, individuals who are entering their prime consumption years. As we have established, uh, you know, when people go from a, a kind of their lower income threshold into upper uh, kind of middle and upper income thresholds, that's when the kind of amount of money spent on discretionary consumption tends to be the highest. When you go from a middle to upper, for instance, that's probably when you're kind of investing in houses or your stock market and kind of other your second home and so on. Uh, the second point I think I wanted to make was just in terms of the consumption kind of patterns of these millennials, there's clearly a lot of kind of online consumption that is picked up quite meaningfully. So if I were to look at, let's say, some key product categories where like air travel, for instance, 40% of that is booked online, um, online kind of payments uh, as, as kind of like non-cash transactions are now reaching up to 30%. Um, advertisements about 20 odd percent are kind of already and paid for online hotel bookings 20 percent e-commerce on the other hand is is only five percent of retail transactions are e-commerce and similar levels for food services and groceries so that gives you a sense of how underpenetrated some categories are and if you were to compare this with china on all of those india is at least at kind of half the penetration levels as China is, and I think kind of similar, maybe even slightly 
kind of higher levels against developed markets. So that kind of gives you a sense of how the evolution of this is going to be. And I think the second piece of the puzzle for, for that to converge is really on kind of mobile phone, smartphone penetration and internet penetration. And on that front, I think it's a, it's a great story because clearly India has one of the cheapest call and data rates in the world. Um, and mobile usage, mobile data usage per user in India is something like 15 GB a month compared to, let's say, China at about eight and a half uh, GB a month, or maybe closer to home, the UK at, let's say, about four gigabytes a month. So, I mean, the average Indian on their mobile phone consumes three and a half times as much data as the average Brit. Uh, that should kind of give you a sense. I think a lot of this is really a function of how cheap data rates are, but also how people use their phones. This is for most people, their primary means of accessing the internet as opposed to you know, through their laptops or through their televisions and so on. It, most of this is through smartphones and hence as smartphone penetration picks up, we still have half a billion feature phones. Uh, it, we clearly will evolve over time as a smartphone penetration increases and kind of does away with the, the feature phone kind of category, which then would also result in additional data usage and additional penetration of each of those categories that I spoke about. So clearly that's a segment we're quite excited about and um, own a fair amount of companies in those segments that should benefit from these teams. Very interesting. And just finally, um, is India getting involved in the decarbonized world? No, again, I think that's it's, uh, of particular interest and, and very topical for, for kind of our client base here in Europe. Um, what, what prompted this question within emerging markets last year was clearly kind of China's big move to announce its carbon neutrality pledge by 2060 and kind of these uh, put in place these five-year targets and, and clearly kind of measure uh, on each of those aspects. Uh, India, I think, is, is fair to say at a much earlier stage, but there's no kind of necessary target on carbon neutrality yet. But I think they've made a lot of progress on other kind of key parameters. So if let's say you were to look at and today, coal still accounts for about 50%, more than 50% of India's installed capacity of electricity generation. But it is already a market leader compared to other countries on renewables, for instance, where greater than 30 35% of installed capacity is actually in the in, in kind of the, the renewable space. Uh, the second point I'd make is kind of according to the direction of travel, according to kind of India's Paris Climate Accord commitment, we're expecting 55 to 60% of energy use by 2030 to, to come from renewables. So clearly that's kind of a meaningful move up. Um, I think the third point I'd make is probably on, uh, on the more near-term perspective in terms of renewables. You've seen you know, wind capacity quadruple, solar energy kind of capacity has increased tenfold in the last five years alone. So clearly there are significant kind of state level initiatives that are helping this. Like more recently, you've seen the cess levied on, on coal increase quite meaningfully over the last, let's say, four or five years. You've seen a corresponding subsidy for wind and solar companies in order to get them off the ground and encourage adoption of those technologies. Uh, EV, I think India is probably going to be, um, at least we've got ambitious targets, but as of today, we're still kind of lagging 
something like a China, which has got about five to seven percent of EV penetration already. Uh, India is, I think, at a much slower pace. Where we've seen progress is clearly on kind of commercial vehicles like public buses, and those kind of tenders are clearly going in in the electric direction. Uh, but clearly, that initial outlay, the charging infrastructure, and just information in consumer minds uh, are are hurdles for EV. But even on that, the government does have a target now of being a 100% electric vehicle economy by as recent as 2030. Again, it remains to be seen for those, I think you do need to see these big hurdles kind of being overcome. But I think the headline comment would still be India is making good strides in the right direction. And I'm sure in the next kind of couple of years, you should see headline kind of targets on, on carbon neutrality and so on come through as well, like most other um, developed countries. Brilliant. Well, Mithran, thank you very much for joining us today. That's been very interesting. Uh, and if you'd like to learn more about the Goldman Sachs India Equity Portfolio Fund, please visit fundcaliber.com. And please also remember to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast. Please remember we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at your time of listening. 